Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday morning. I'm trying to hop around to get this overseas, as they say before Shabbos. Uh, today's Parsha podcast, we're doing um, in memory of my brother, actually. My nephew, Yoshio Levenger and Munshi, is uh, sponsoring this, uh, as you appreciate. Uh, August 3 was my brother's birthday. He passed away in the year 2000. I was a half-brother. That's why my name is Katz. His name is Levenger. And uh, he was born, my brother, that is, uh, in 1944 in uh, Slovakia. Uh, that's uh, just, you know, in other words, he was born in the middle of the Holocaust. And I'm just thinking now that uh, today's the 6th of August. So if he was born August 3, then his birth would have been, I guess, August 8. Is that right? No, what am I talking about? Eight days. August 11. And uh, in other words, this is the time when uh, my mother, who just had a baby, had to decide because her husband ran away, was uh, hiding from the Germans, and the Germans killed him. It's around the time the Germans came into Slovakia. Uh, whether or not to give him a bris. It's like a famous family lore, and they did Kim Briss, and which exposed the baby to all kinds of dangers if you're living in Central Europe in 1944. And so uh, here we are, uh, almost at 24, almost, uh, my goodness, almost 80 years later, almost 80 years later, uh, contemplating this. So this, whatever I say to anybody should be a tribute to his memory. Now, um... It came to me, whatever, I won't go farther into that. Uh, and Yoshio asked me to say something, uh, expand maybe, or compliment remarks I did about the genre of Medrash. Because I'm always talking about different Russian and so forth. I believe there was a time once a year ago I spoke in general about these terms. I don't remember exactly. And uh, I'll just say whatever comes to mind. Although before I do that, let me just share a very quick idea that I saw off the other day in the Zoom, what I do with the show about Parsha's Akiv, and then I'll proceed to the topic of the Medrash. It was just interesting to me that, you know, in these four Parshas, Dvarim B'shan Akiv, Moshe is haranguing the Jewish people before his death. The way a concerned parent does when he looks at a wastrel child and figures, once I'm gone, you're going to run this business into the ground. Which Moshe Rabbeinu basically says, if you're honest, and you look at the whole Dvarim, because later on he says, Ki adati ki achri mosi hashchis <laughs> so he knows who he's dealing with. But anyway, uh, so he's warning always against idol worship. And uh, don't fall for that. And I would say the whole Chumash is full of that. Don't go for other idols. The Ten Commandments is full of that, right? The whole Ten Commandments is about that. It's about warning against idol worship and syncretism. Now, it's pure idol worship and idol worship mixed together like in a drink with Judaism which is really the kind of idols that the Jewish people got into. Um, however, in this week's Parsha, among other things, Moshe warns about consumerism, as I always call it, because he said that leads you not to worship another god. 
to forget God, which is, which is a different thing. It's so interesting to me, because that's the 21st century. You've got so many luxury and the materialistic items, you don't need God. That is to say, he's not part of your consciousness. You know, if you'll come, he says, to a land, then you'll find, you know, everything all set for you, and so forth. And that'll make God very angry. So, is different than Avodazor. What can I tell you? At this stage of my life, I find it very interesting. You know, the danger is not another God. The danger is zero God. Because to tell you the truth, the person for whom life is materially very well off, if everything's going, you don't need any God. <laughs> Correct? Yeah, I'm financially secure. I got my vacation spots. I got everything worked out. Monday night I go to this restaurant. Tuesday I do that. Wednesday night I go this. Everything works out great. I actually don't need God. You see that? That's a different thing than, than following another God. Avodah means I have needs. I talk to Hashem, it doesn't help. So I'll go to Baal. I'll go to Asherah. That's a different word altogether. Let's say, for example, Chazram, somebody's childless. And, you know, say, Dom, 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 nothing works. Then he's like, I'll try my luck with another deity. So that's one thing. That's Avodah Zara. Okay? Here, a person is like this. I don't make trouble with children. I don't make trouble with money. I don't make trouble with anything else. And that's called Shichas Hashem. That is more American, isn't it? I don't know, it strikes to me. That's more modern. That's more uh, of our time. It's more American. Anyhow, uh, that was just a thought. But uh, if you look at, we're now in Dvarm, Book of Dvarm. So uh, the question is always how to analyze the Chumash. That's the question. And there has never been a single way to analyze the text of the Chumash. The very meaning of the word Torah Shavalpeh denotes a variety, possibly an infinite variety, of uh, reading strategies and interpretive strategies. How to read and interpret the text. Uh, the Ramban kind of talks about this introduction to Chumash, does he not? And this is just interesting. So in other words, you open the page, you the average person, you look at the Mikras Gedolas. That ain't all that's out there. Well, you say, well, I get another... Five or ten books. I'll get a Malbim and a, uh, you know, a Savakabola, whatever. That doesn't exhaust the to- total possibility of ways of reading it. Moreover, as time goes by, the person living in the 21st century is going to be noticing things that a person living a couple centuries ago wouldn't notice. For example, I just made an observation about Shechas Hashem based on the 21st century reality of, a, of what many people is, is an extreme material prosperity. You know, that kind of thing, which would not necessarily be a perspective that would uh, occur to somebody living in the 1700s when they're working young Malayla just to put bread in their mouth. There's no extra time in, in life. It, it, the Torah itself, given at one a certain time in history, but as time and experiences go by, you cannot help but be influenced by those time and experiences in reading the Chumash. I repeat, you cannot help it. That's not avoiding you. God made it that way. He put you in a certain generation and subject to a certain history and a certain contemporary reality, uh, to obviously people today reading the Chumash in Israel are going to read these parshas in Dvarim different than 100 years ago, 200 years ago, when people could only dream of living in Israel and they had no idea that there would ever be a Jewish state whatsoever, no matter what quality. These are just fundamental uh, principles involved in trying to understand the Torah of the Chumash itself. Having said that, so... Historically, we do not have any records whatsoever 
of how the Chumash was read and analyzed and interpreted in the Bayesian period. Get it? We have the rarest references. You do here and there, but very rare in the Old Testament, in the Nach, to passages from the Chumash. You understand? Uh, it just comes to mind, one of the kings was assassinated in Yehuda, and his son took over and killed the perpetrators, killed the assassins. And he did not kill the families of the assassins. Because it says Nechumash there, is this in Melachim or Tiber Yaman? It says, because it says Nechumash, that's a rare case where in the text of the Tanakh, there's a reference to the passage from Nechumash. So I don't know, we'll never know exactly how they interpret it. Uh, in the area of Dinim and Halacha, this was always bothering great people thousand, two thousand years ago, trying to figure out how they did it. And um, that's a long and complicated subject. If you're interested in the party line, you get that essay that I translated, the Igeris of Shiragun, which the article put out not too long ago. And Shiragun, who's before the Rishonim, a Gaon in Babel, that means the Rashiva in Babel, uh, one of the two Rashivas, Rashiva Pumadisa in the 10th century, so he put together a famous, they call it the Igeris or Teshuva or whatever, like an essay in which stringing together all the different sources you find in the Talmud, uh, he kind of came up with, with, with a, uh, a narrative. Right? How things were done in time with Bias Rishon and afterwards. His narrative. Which more or less, more or less became the party line. The Rambam says in a more dumbed-down fashion, some slight differences, but and they're all in that art school book, by the way. I think it's called Intro to the Talmud. And, uh, but stick with Shiragon, he's more accurate. Much more lengthy and much more uh, detailed. And uh, there they're worried about how they derive dinim. You understand? Because that's really what the heart of the rabbinical enterprise is. The halacha. Okay? Now put that all aside for a second. Right? And let me ask you the question. What about what you and I call agadato? How do they interpret the chumash agadically? They don't know. It's not possible to know. But one thing is that I just said before... That any text, in particular text of Chumash, very rich, and lends itself to different Agaratab interpretations, which is nothing different than what a good speaker, a good rabbi does today, except at a higher level. They used to do it at a higher level. You know? So, you know, if I said, Akiv Tishmoon, you know, somebody could give a speech, oh, you know, like Rashi says, the little things in life, Dorm Shadash Bakevo, now you can make a whole speech around that. You know, let's put it this way What are my, my friends? Are the sins of American Jewry today typically Adam Dashba Kevo? No, Lashanar or whatever. You know, things like that. Now, therefore, it's if you want to speak in a scholarly way, in a historical way, we don't have any books from Bayesian period on this subject. Although there's no question that they must have looked at the stories of Avram, Mitzvah, Yaakov, and Moshe, and Amram, which we find in the Chumash, the five books of Moses, try to understand. The story parts, in other words, not just the dinim parts, but the story parts. Now, let's move on to the Baishani. In the Baishani also, we don't have any books on this kind of subject, although there did occur, there did come out the apocryphal literature, which discusses Agatha stuff to some degree, uh, in unusual ways, and usually in Hellenistic type of fashion. But I think everybody knows the Agatha, the uh, apocryphal literature was not really accepted by the rabbis. So they, they didn't consider that 
you know, uh, a legitimate uh, form of analysis of the Agarata and certainly the Halacha. You can analyze the different apocryphal books that have survived in Greek and try to compare and contrast what you find in there in terms of halachic statements versus what you find in rabbinical literature, in the Gemara, in the Talmud, broadly speaking. And that's something scholars have been doing since Zechariah Frankel. You know, when he his famous thing, you compare the Alexandrian halacha that you find in Philo with the Babylonian halacha you find in the Talmud. Uh, what's the name of why you did that long ago? Rabbi Belkin. And many others have. Now it's a commonplace. What about the Agatha? Not so much. Not so much. But then, as we know, somehow or other, starting in the Bayashini period, and then proceeding after the Bayashini period, so roughly speaking, what you and I call the period of the Tanoim, discussions on Agatha topics, ways of analyzing Agatha topics, what does it mean? Paholam Isotova Vo. What does it mean, on a mechav and the tree? What does it mean, the akedo? What does it mean? The, what does it mean when Moshe went up the mountain and talked to God? Was God at the top of the mountain? You know what I'm saying? All those thousands and one issues like that, for somehow or other, nobody knows exactly how, some, a tiny portion of those discussions got to be recorded. They weren't uh, put onto a book form in the time of Bayashani. But they were put into a book form, or they began to be, in the period after Bayashani, when in general the Torah Shabbat Peb started to become a Torah Shabbat Sav. Get it? That's what we call in English Tanaitic literature. You know, reluctantly, whatever, however the, pro, the, 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 the process went, we have very few statements. People and historians and scholars build whole series out of very brief statements you find in the Talmudic literature. And uh, it's a lot of guesswork, because it's not anything clear on this. We would love to have clear essay from Rabbi Kiva, what are the do's and don'ts in coming to Agarat or Halacha or anything like that. But all we know is, as you know, obviously, that the players that appear in the Tanaitic literature are Tanaim, and people a little bit before that. You know, Hill and Shammai, things like that. Right? This is what it is. So, we're talking, therefore... If the base of Mishra was destroyed in the year 70, so roughly speaking, for the next 100 years or so, from 70 to 170 CE, or 200 CE, you know, uh, like that. During this period, statements and ideas of those rabbis somehow or other got to be recorded. Now, there's no question that in the time of Ezra Nechem, he had the same thing, just one recorded. In the time of David Melch, he had the same thing, one recorded. In the time of... Uh, Ehud ben Gera, or Devorah Hanaviah, right? All this stuff was going on all the time. For better or worse, it was a Tershua which means they didn't want to preserve any written records. And more than that, I'm not in a position to say nobody's in a position to say, because we don't know. You know, when there's an absence, you can only guess, right? So in, in Bayesian period, nothing was ever recorded. In Bayesian period, stuff was recorded. Again, when you consider how many yeshivas and rabbis and things like that were going on at that time, it must be a felt. And we have a, 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 a drop of the yam. Okay? On the other hand, the people who recorded are the elite. You know, Rabbi Lezer, Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Shua, Rabbi Tarfin, you know, the people you find in HaGadosh HaPesach at Bnei Brak. The first generation time, the second, there's like three generations of times. That's how it works out. The first generation is what I said before. 
from Bnei Brach in the Haggadahs, the Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Tarfim, Blazer Mazari, Rabbi Yeshua, and also Rabbi Gamil is not there, and maybe one or two or three others. And the second generation, also we know basically who is this, and Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Shem Ben Yochai, and uh, Shem Ben Gamliel, and you know, a few others like that, right? Rabbi Yehuda, a little like that. And the third generation is usually the children of the second generation. You know what I mean? Those there was a Rihuda, you have Rabbi Yisra, Rabbi Yehuda, you have Shem Ben you have Rihuda Nasi, and you know, you have Shimon Yichai, you have and Shimon. That's more or less who the third generation was. So it's actually not that hard. It seems hard to get a grasp of who the three generations of Tanoim are. You know, it seems like a vast task. If you don't make your business to go every every obscure town that's mentioned once or twice, but you want the ones that appear most times not that hard. And we have somehow or other, nobody knew us exactly how, collections of statements from these people that somehow or other got recorded in the, in written form uh, towards the end of the period of time, it seems, as best that we know. And so books came out. Okay? Uh, we don't like to say it, but books came out. Now, a book is a shot that you take a whole bunch of ideas and you put them into the covers and then people make copies and that constitutes the book. You understand? No, it's what lies between the two covers makes it a text. As we all know, there are plenty of things that never got into book form and uh, they could prices and uh, they are what they are. No, it's a lot of them, since they weren't collected in any form, uh, weren't in any books. The books are, coll- are, are, are selections of prices, if I can use that terminology. The ones that didn't get put in any kind of textual form, either they appear in the Gemara somewhere or in Meadows somewhere, you know, tangentially, and that's how you know about it, or they don't, in which case you never knew about it. There was no question in my mind. I mean, I'll just give you off the top of my head, and that's all I ever do here. We just had Tisha above, and I remember there's a very famous Meadows, Rava, in Eichel, which says that there was a Rehuna Nosson and Rabbi Yochanan, and Rehuna Nosson used to give, I don't know, uh, 60 drushes on uh, part of Eichel, Bil Hashem Luchamal, is called Nos Yaakov. Uh, and Rabbi Yochanan gave 600 or something like that. No, Rabbi Yochanan did a lot. And he says, because Rabbi Yochanan, since he lived closer to the Chorim, he was like more or less the generation of survivors or immediately afterwards, and he knew a lot of people are killed by the Romans, etc. And he broke down emotionally, couldn't continue. So let's let's take that at face value. Uh, here's Rabbi Yochanan, and let's say he had 60 drushes. And Rabbi Yochanan, let's say 600, if, I might, if my memory is right. Some kind of number. Where are they? We don't know what they are. They're gone. He didn't record. It wasn't a modern rabbi to put a YouTube up. <laughs> you know what I mean? A podcast. They're not recorded. He spoke about it. Maybe people make notes when they heard it that time, but it was not recorded in any kind of formal text. That's just an example off the top of my head. So all these famous people, Hillel and Shammai and all the other people, obviously, uh, obviously, they... Uh, you know, were uh, tremendously productive and they spoke a lot and uh, we don't have them. You know what I'm saying? We don't have them. So anyhow, uh, whew, let me put it this way. So we are now looking at a small literary sample of what the Tanoim produced. That is what you and I call the Tanoim literature. The Mishnah, the Tosefta, and the Medrash which leads us to the word medrash. As far as we know, the word medrash, which was never formally defined, 
simply means from the word dorish to pull out, right? To pull out of something. It's like a modern ivrit, it's a demand, right? I try to pull something out of you. Midrash. So you're trying to pull something out of the Pasuk, out of the Torah of Uh Obviously, the Mishnah is not a Midrash, the Mishnah is not a Mishnah. But the Mechilta, Sifra and Sifri, which appeared at this time, are Tanetic books. It's the same people talking. It's Rabbi Kiva talking in the Mishnah. It's Rabbi Kiva talking in the Tosefta. It's Rabbi Kiva talking in the Medesh Halacha, because that's the term we use for the Mechilta, the Sifra and the Sifri. So this week we're doing Devarim, Pasha Zekev. You want to see... What the Tanaitic uh, Midrash is, notice how the Tanaim applied their analysis to um, the words in Pashat Ve'ekab, to whatever degree there is, there is something called the Sifri, and you can look it up, right? You open it up. Matter of fact, um, this is the oldest, I guess, uh, commentary, or whatever you want to call it, on Pashat Ve'ekab. The oldest that we have. Oldest in any kind of written form. That's my point. Now, Therefore, one can make a study of Medrash. It's a very good idea. So in fact, actually, you're supposed to do what I'm saying. You're supposed to do that. You look at the uh, Alter Rebbe, you know, with the Hilchus Talmud Torah. You have the Mishnah, the Sefta, the Gemara, and, of course, the Medrash Halacha. goes without saying. So, uh, and a lot of the times, the Medrash Halacha is quoted in the Gemara. If you ever look on the side, you know, it'll be from Chilter and Sifra and Sifri. And these are called Medish Halacha because even though it's a form of Medish is taking it out of the Pusik, and it's not doing it in any thematic way, because if you go by the Pusik, you know how I go, you know how it works. The Chumash is written uh, in a non systematic fashion. Here Moshe Rabbein is talking about Avodazar, a minute later he's talking about uh, Shabbos, a minute later he's talking about Erinadachas, a minute later talking about Kasha and Kalim. You know how from a thematic point of view the Chumash is a ramble. Right? It's not organized by subject. You know, here are the words that Moses spoke about the subject of Tumah and Tahara. Nothing like that. Particularly in Devarim, by the way. Right? It's a real jumble. Uh, but just think, for example, Apashish Kedoshim. You know, Achimah's Kedoshim. You have one thing followed by another thing. They have no real connection with each other that would, uh, you know, would, would, would uh, appear to a regular reader. I mean, you can make a case, you know, but you have to be very ingenious and you have to twist with one hand and the other hand. Eh, it doesn't seem like it adheres together. Right? So, same thing with these parshas, Dwarm, Vaschan, Naked Ray, particularly, but later on also. Parshas Shoftim, you know what I'm talking about. Now, therefore, if there's something called Midrash Halacha, if there's something called the Sifri, that what you're doing is, you're going to, whoever wrote it, whoever wrote it, and whoever edited it and put it together in the book form that we have today, uh, simply said, I'm going to see what Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Lazar ben Azar, Rabbi Tafrin, the other Tanayim, said on the Pasuk Eikev Tishmun, or the Pasuk Hayim Shemo Tishmul which appears in Parshat Eikev as well. So, that means that the principle of organization is not the alphabetical one, like an encyclopedia, or the thematic one, which you have a table of contents, and here you talk about God, and here you talk about Abed Azar, and here you talk about Shabbos, and here you talk about this. But rather, it's going to be on the textual one that you, the individual Jew, are expected, like a good Balkore, like a Balkore, to just know Parshat Eikev, more or less. You understand? A good Balkore has been around the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the cycles several times. More or less knows the Chumash, right? 
pretty, you know, some more, some less. You pretty much know where things are. And especially with Google now, it's a new world, of course. But I'm just saying, you know where the So if I want to know, that parsha that we say every day in the Shema, which, oh yeah, I have to remember, it's an Akiv. You understand? So that will be the place you go look up what the, what the Rebbe Kiva and these other people said on the subject. So you're using the text of the Chumash as your principal organization. Right? It's an encyclopedia in that way. And, of course, it demands that the person wanting to access this is pretty familiar with the Chumash, so will know where this kind of stuff is discussed. You understand? So take, for example, Hilchah Shabbos. i got to know that some of Hilchah Shabbos is in Parshat Vayakel, and some of Hilchah Shabbos is in B'Sham Shabbos, and some of Hilchah Shabbos will be placed in Makosh Shetzim. In another place, it was expected in the Medish Halacha era that scholars, the Talmud Chacham as they call them, will know where these things are located, and the Midrashic point means that the principal organization is the text of the Chumash. As opposed to the non-Medrish form of Tanakh literature, like the, the Mishnah and the Tosefta, for example, the two outstanding examples, there is actually going to be a place called Masech de Shabbos. <laughs> There's going to be another place called Masech de Shulin. You know what I'm saying, right? And Zvachim, and so on and so forth. This is the fundamental layer of the Medrish, and anyone who wants to understand the basics of Judaism, I'm saying, no, I'm not being funny when I say I'm speaking real. You really have the obligation uh, not to do Chumash and Rashi every week so much. They do Chumash with the Mechelta, the Sifra, and the Sifri. Ain't necessarily for everybody. Now, because of the nature how literature developed, uh, it didn't have so much mazel. So there are commentaries on the Mechelta, Sifra, and Sifri. But since it's fairly technical, as I said before, it kind of expects that the average person it's going to have to be like a Balkari and know where everything's located. I can't really say that people got very into the, certainly the average person, Michilta Sifra and Sifri. So here we deal with the fact that there's a Cinderella factor. Some texts get a lot of play, and other texts do not get a lot of play for a whole bunch of reasons. The Mishnayis was lucky enough to get a Bartanur, and he put it out there. I don't think Mishnah was studied so heavily before the Bartanur came along. Uh, so, you know, that was his uh, zechus, things like that, or to use modern terminology, you know, uh, kahati. I'm talking about the social history of a text. Do people read this or not read this? Do they use it or do not use it? So, at the first level of the Midrash, it was fairly technical, even though, even though it's not all halachic. Uh, many of the passages in the Mechilta, Sifra, and Sifri are dealing with halachas. So in other words, if you find, again, Rabbi Kibra, Gamil, all this arguing the subject, that could very well be the halacha l'maysa. There are the Rishonim, people like that, uh, had different attitudes towards the Medish halacha, and sometimes, basically, the approach of the Rambam would be, if you find something, a statement, let's say for argument's sake, Rabbi Gamil said this is, 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 is kosher, or let's say he says treif, Let's say he says treif. If you don't find anything else in the Gemara anywhere, you know, the Bavli, Shami, all the rest of it, then the Rambam's uh, position would be, then we go with that Michalta and his treif. You know what I'm saying? There are halachas out there, not a small number, which are traceable to the Michalta's and Friends of Reed. You don't find them challenged 
in the Talmud. So then that's it. On the other hand, there are other Rishonim who said, well, it's got to be in the Gemara. It's not in the Gemara. It's not, it's not governing. You know what I'm saying? It's not, not halacha principle. Here you see halacha itself becomes a matter of minhag. What are we going to have, be knowing to consider uh, a law? Because we Jews have been bereft of a Congress of a Sanhedrin you know, for a very long time. We're trying to manage without it. And it's, to some degree it's impossible. And to some degree it's possible. It's impossible because there's no legislative body to say it's a law. On the other hand, strong traditions have uh, developed, and those traditions take the place of law within Judaism. Right? Isn't that interesting, what I just said? In, in, in certain circumstances, uh, strong traditions can acquire a very strong uh, force of practice as if it were a law. Again, just off the top of my mind, Cheren ben Gershom. Everybody knows Ben Gershon lived in the nine ten hundreds. Who's he? He can't prohibit me from marrying two wives, right? He's not a Tana. He's not an Amora. We have a rule that the only halacha, I repeat, halacha, is, um, you know, uh, in the Gemara. Get it? Anything outside the Gemara is not halacha. Zachary so Ben Gershon go, who lived at that time, and say nobody for next thousand, ten thousand years can marry two wives. What gives you the right to say it? Right? That's assuming he really said it. Well, what do you give the right to say it? No, I'm wrong. Nobody says that, do you? Nobody says boo. What? I'm not advocating for polygamy. It'd be horrified. What are you talking about? Because you don't do it. Like, it's a camera oh, like that. You don't ask the question. Now, that's just interesting. Why, why don't you ask the question? That's what I mean when I say that certain practices uh, uh, attained a very powerful, powerful, through over, over history and sentiment, of a very powerful uh, uh, emotional hold, and it's treated as if it were a law, as if it were a law. There are other things in the Gemara, the Talmud itself, which are stated as laws, and people don't keep them. <laughs> right? They don't keep them. There's that whole book, with Shmir Nefesh, you can see all those things. You know, the Gemara says, if you step over an egg, you do this, that, and the other, and then, you know, it goes to Rishonim, we're always saying, how come we don't practice this? And they'll come for one reason or another. You know, but, uh, you know what I'm saying. So, uh, what is halacha? What's not halacha? It's, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to uh, in the pigeonhole, right? to put it exactly in, in, in the right square box. Now, the Michilta Sifra and Sifri, a lot of it has to do with halacha. That's what we call Mesh halacha. Because the text of uh, Shmos, and particularly Vayikra, as well as by Midrashvarim, has a lot of halachic material in there. There's a mitzvot that Moshe been laid out there. But on the other hand, it also has Agatha, right? What really happened with Pinchas when he killed that uh, girl, you know, the Zimri and all that. Uh, you know, uh, what, what did Moshe say to the Jews as they stood on the, on the Red Sea? You know, what did the Jews say? You know, jump in, don't jump in. These are not halachas, these are matters of Agatha. Get it? Anything that's not halachic is called Agatha. It's like a negative term. Whatever doesn't fall in halacha, we broadly term as Agatha. There's a ton of that stuff. And I'm talking about in the Michilta, not so much in the Sifra, but in the Sifra, yes. Uh, which is why I said, at a very basic level, if somebody wants to be a real scholar, you just make it your business from now on, you put aside some time, and, say, and, and you don't have to do it in partial braces because there's no Medeshalach and braces. But on Shemot, Reiko, Bemidvarim. So now it's Akev. So what do you got now? Ray. You know, and so on and so forth. You say every week, I'm going to get hold of a, a Sifri. It's, 
It's all online now, if you don't have it at home. I bet you, money is on Safari, yeah? probably an English translation. Um, and you say, I'm going to make it my business to go to Shani, to Shalishi every week. Whatever, you know, whatever works for you. And just get acquainted with the world of the Sifri. Now, Rashi on the Chumash does liberally quote from the Mechotim of Sifri on Sifri. It's not all he does, right? It's not all he does, but it's one of the things he does. Uh, and uh, that was like the first layer. That would take you up to the period of the Amorim. Amorim. Then, you have, of course, the Agarata in the Gemara. That's not Medrash. Uh, because they're just stories. They're not coming necessarily out of the Psukim. They're more in nature of stories. But as you and I know, somehow, sometime, nobody knows exactly when, excuse me, roughly contemporaneous with the Gemara, or better yet, with the time that the Gemara was published as a text, whatever that means, and however confusing that all is, and again, go check out the Gerash Shurgon, so let's just, for argument's sake, take the 500s uh, CE and the 600s. You know, after the end of period, I'm right. Somehow, somewhere, another kind of Medish started to come out as well. And these would be what we call the Medish Agadotho. So, these were mainly, let's put it this way, none of these had the authority of the Michalto Sifra and Sifri. That's just like a basic episode. So when you find something in Chosin number three, you pass him from it. Maybe when you find something in the others, you do not. You do not. Not if the only source is from there. It doesn't become binding. Listen, if you want to follow it, gives them to hate as a you know as a personal thing. They can't impose it as a law. Okay, that's a a, a basic soap. Now, these things we simply don't have good records. What can I tell you? We have good records when they came out, when they were published, and so. Chachamim and academic scholars have no choice but to try to figure out the best they can, which is a difficult business, you know, using tools of academic analysis in one form or another. Who wrote these? When they put them out? How do I know it's accurate? And so, and a lot of these questions cannot be answered. Having said that, in the history of Klaistro, like I just told you before with the Cherem Benegashim, certain texts spread around a lot and came to be seen as, as accurately reflecting you know what what the uh, Chazal Tanoim and people like that post time say in Agarata matters uh, and uh, as I said before in Agarata matters and therefore you know they, they were created with great respect because I am interested in Rabbi Kiva analysis of how you split the Red Sea I am interested in what Gamliel has to say about you know, uh, what was the sin of Moses? Did he hit a rock or something like that, you know? I am interested to say, how come everybody fell for the Benosimov? Or what did Bilam really mean? Or something like that. Because these are important issues. Now, you know, Kedarlom or whatever. Now, in this case, some, I'll tell you again for the tenth time, we do not know how and exactly when these texts came out. But they did. That means somebody must have collected them. Something must have edited them. Uh, what does that mean in a world when there was no printing press? There wasn't a classic editing like you have now ever since uh, Gutenberg. Uh, these are valid questions, but I'm afraid there are no answers. No, it's not really answers that you, the, the type you'd like to hear. 
you just have to say, we live with uncertainty. Having said that, the Menesh Rabbah and Menesh Tanchuma, as we call it today, became the two main texts of the uh, Agadatah literature. So it became an Indian. If you want to know what Chazal say on, on the whole Chumash, all the parts of the Chumash, that's where you go to. The Menesh Rabbah Now, the Menesh Rabbah is just like a, it's like a, what's the right word? A, a generic term. It's not the same person wrote the whole thing. And it's not these books even came at the same time. We can, now, what I'm telling you is what modern scholarship has uh, established the last 200 years. So, or more. Starting, by the way, or contemporaneous, not only with uh, non-from, although a lot of non-from, but even like the son of the Vilna Gonos, he's got that, uh, uh, say for what's it called, uh, where you know, he, tries, he tries to analyze how old these things, which are more accurate, which are not accurate. Now, the problem is, we don't have a Vatican. We don't have any centralized Sanhedrin, uh, anything in Judaism. So anybody can write anything and put it out there. So the problem is, you can also write bogus stuff. I can say, spuriously, the Rabbi Kiva said this about the Great Yamsa. How do you know I'm telling you the truth? Then there's no way usually to know. So all you can say is that the Jewish world, the Frum world, for the last 1,500 years, came to view all these, what we call Medoshagata, in some kind of consensus fashion, in my opinion, that's all you ever get here, I would say along three lines, as with everything else. Things that were strongly held to be real, things were strongly held to be bogus, and stuff in the middle we're not 100% sure about. Okay? If you want an area that's strongly held to be real, the main ones is the Manish Rabbah and Manish Tanchuma. It's not the only one, but it's the main one. Right now, I think everybody knows the, what do you call it, the um, uh, Bracious Rabbah came out first. But if you ever look at the Bracious Rabbah versus Dvarm Rabbah, Dvarm Rabbah is very tiny. So it can't be all that was there. It's just somehow or other, that's what happened in the editing process. Go take the Medish Rabbah and Dvarm and put it next to the Sifri. The Sifri is bigger. You see? Now put it next to Bracious. Bracious is much bigger. And it's Dover up that, you know, there are different manuscripts of the Dvarm Rabbah. What's his name? Um, uh, I've read a conservative. Uh, uh, Saul Lieberman posted a very famous edition of the Medish Rabbah and Dvarm, which was different than the regular one we have. There's a... Uh, anyway, this is the state of the game. And so, well, that, I, you know, I don't want to take everybody into a PhD disquisition, but the bottom line is, you, if, if you're interested in a subject whatsoever, you can spend a lot of time, very productively, and you say like this, every week I'm going to do, uh, you know, the Parsha Shishavua with, um, you know, Friday night, whatever your system is, what your time is, with the Medishrava. That'll take you a while, but it's invaluable, or or later, or something like that. Now, that's a lot of material. What does that mean? Then you see how Chazal thought. Correct? Then you see how Chazal thought. If you get used to it, now I'm speaking from experience here. Many years I used to do this in my house, Friday night with students and whatever, I mean for decades. The, uh, it can be done. Then you see how Chazal thought, and you're getting what you call an unmediated um, uh, acquaintance with the text. Don't look at the regular impression like Rashi and Bonnet and those because they're going to explain what they think the Medish means. You read the Medish yourself. You understand? 
Now, um, it's tricky because the art school does have a translation, no question about it. I had some student of mine working with, actually, um, that they're going to give you a mediated one. That's what art school does. They don't want to give you the regular shot. They want to give you what the, can I call them the Mikras Gedolas, you know, the guys on the side, the Marzav and whoever, you know, they too said what they say, the uh, Medishmiz. Um, but if you want the real thing, try to the best of your ability. And I, you know, not everybody can do this. Try your best. Just read the Medish straight. Okay? Read the Medish straight. I find that that's the best by far. And uh, then you want, then you get an idea of the Agadita world of the Chazal. To the best we can have it. Again, whatever we have is a tiny sample, a drop from the yam of what must have been out there. But what can I do? I'll never know what Abaya thought about Noah. You know what I mean? Not going to happen. And I'm not going to necessarily know where Avashi thought about, you know, the snake in the garden. I don't know. Can't help it. You can only deal with what you got. You can't curse the darkness. You have to use the light. Now, having said that, so this leaves an area in which, as I say, mainly Amenish Rav Amenish has always been regarded as authoritative in the sense I just described. The principle is obviously the same one of Midrash. It goes by the Pasuk, so I can't help it. you got to know that the Akedah is going to be located you know, over there in Parshish Vayera. You know what I'm saying? That's the principle of organization. It's true that there's some overlap, you know what I mean, sometimes you find a Vayikro, but there are a club, you'll find the Parsha, you know, in, in Vayera. Now, you, you know what I mean, the story of Shmos is going to be in Shmos. Um, you'll see that the Medrash Rabbah is actually often a collection of speeches that people gave, and they had certain rhetorical styles, which are not exactly the ones that we would apply today. They were rhetorical styles at that time. And for some reason, I know they used to like, for example, to quote from Tanakh, and then bring it to the Parsha of the Week. It worked that way. That was the, the, the popular speaking style, the rhetorical style. So you have a story, Aaron Cohen. they'll start with a Pusik, you know, in, I don't know, Mishle, about watch out for booze, and then eventually get around to none of an avia. You know, that, that's the style at that time. In other words, the Medrash Agada reflects the historical time in which it was written, in which, you know, they use certain uh, rhetorical styles. Uh, they also use certain forms of muscles. Uh, I think I mentioned this once. There's a great book called Königsgleiser, in which this scholar, I don't know who he was in the 19th century, can show you a lot of times the Medrash said, Marshal and Melech said, also this, that, and the other. And it's really coming from the Greek and Roman world. You understand? And so just like a good rabbi today, if he wants to be in touch really with the people he's speaking to, He'll say, oh, what happens in Parsha today reminds me of Trump and Biden. You know, he's trying to establish a cashier in, in the contemporary reality with his listeners. That's what they used to do over there. Okay? Everything I just said is at the plain Parsha shot level. Later in history, uh, in Judaism, you'll find, I would say the, after the Middle Ages, more or less in the beginning, the early modern period, the 1500s, 1600s, the approach of the morale and people like that, in which, at least in written level, they'll say, no, you think he was just talking about Julius Caesar? No, there's, you know, this symbolism and that symbolism. Fine, no problem. But the playing push at level, before you get to that level of analysis, Halavai, you should know it that way. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Halavai, you should know it that way. The reason, let me let me say this. I, in my opinion, this is a very important, necessary 
thing to do, because otherwise, all you ever encounter in medical is somebody's quoting it in some context. So you can't see if they're really quoting it correctly, if they're using for a spin, because they want to make a point, which is endemic to the midrashic process. You quote a piece to back up your your point, but if you analyze it and read it yourself, you say, well, it doesn't really match what this mahabra is saying. You see? But you're not in position to judge this unless you say, I'm going to make it my business to go through Rachel's Rabbah. I'm making my visit go through Shmuel's Rabbah. Now, uh, as I said, the Menesh Rabbah and Menesh Tanchuma are the two main ones, and clearly, these are collected out of the, um, you know what I mean, out of the uh, world of the Tanayim Mamarim, early Mamarim. In addition to that, the third one um, is the Pirkei Velezer, which is written Hebrew, not Aramaic, and it's written different than the other one, it doesn't have that kind of form like we just described. It seems to be more unitary. And uh, style, historians and scholars have always pointed out that at least part of the Pirkei Lezer comes from a later period. You see you know, all kinds of strange references in there. doesn't matter. You find that in, in the mainline from world, the Pirkei Lezer considered Medish like the Medish Rabbah. You understand? And so the Rambam will quote from it in the Mordebuchim and places like that. Uh, no matter, you know, however strange the thing is. I mean, Ramam talks about, uh, I just remember this, uh, Chava having beer with the with the Nochash over there. He said, oh, I got it in, the, in Pirkei Belezer. Okay? So another safe you have to be familiar with is the Pirkei Belezer, which is not that long. So, um, there is a, you know, this genre of the ones that are Makobal and used widely out there, mainly Semitic Shrava, Meshachum, and Pirkei Belezer. There are a couple others. You know, but these are the heart of it. If you would spend the next year, you know, familiarizing yourselves with these, uh, then you really would be adding some fundamental ideas uh, to your to your knowledge. Fundamental ideas. On the other extreme, there are all kind of midrashim out there. The number is where the heck these things came from. They can purport to say all kind of things. The firm world never knew exactly how to deal with this. Because is it real? Is it not real? And there's no one way, because we don't have a Vatican, you know, there's no one way of relating to these. But because nobody knew exactly how real they are, they're not used much. So you will find an obscure medish that nobody's ever heard of. Once in a while, I'll be quoted by a Ramban or something like that. And often the Ramban will say, if it's true. I remember, for example, he says, with the story after the rape of Dina, you know, uh, he says, if you want to believe the story in the Sefer Yashar, or whatever is the, the, about the war, which gives details about the wars between the sons of Yaakov and the Canaanites, who are trying to take revenge on them. And now in the Chumash it says that the guy were afraid of the Jews after the Shechem was wiped out. But, you know, by Shimon and Levi. But other places that they had to fight. And the Ramban said, if, you, if, if it's true, this is what it says over there. Uh, Others also, once in a while, they'll quote from these rather strange midrashim that are not exactly called mainstream. And because they're not mainstream, so, you know, they're useful for homiletic purposes, but, you know, on the other hand, you don't want to be saying a bunch of baloney. Something somebody made up. We do not have a editorial board when it comes to medrash, which said, this is Dafka and this is Lav Dafka. We did have that on the Torah Shabbat you know what I'm saying? That's exactly what it had. That's why the Torah Shabbat is a very fixed kind of canon. 
the people who were the editorial board of Torah Shavik is Anshikensegdol, people like that. So they'll say, this is in, this is not, this is you rely on, this you don't rely on. We simply don't have that in the word of med- world of measures. The, the main thing you have is that's come to be, you know, over a hoary past, I would say. That's how I understand it. And, uh, and there are some in the middle that get used once in a while and less, uh, less in a while. Um, now, among those that would be in the first category, but lesser so, it's called the Pesikta. Excuse me. The Pesikta. Pesikta Rabasi, Pesikta this, Pesikta that. And these were, you know, collections of speeches that were given on very specific occasions, sometimes for holidays, Sometimes uh, on haftoras and things like that. Again, from Tanaim or Marim, but um, you know they they've more or less you know gotten in, gotten in there. Gotten, you know, now it's very often you'll see somebody quote a pesikta, but it makes a difference. How should I put it? How should I put it? Let's say I'm giving. Let's say I was a rishon or an achron, and let's say I mean, if I want to make a from kite point of view, it's to tell you something. To make make it more from from a goddess perspective, it doesn't really matter, you know, if I'm using something a little more accurate or so a little, little less accurate, because I'm just getting a moral point across. Uh, because what I just said, you find people sometimes were more prone to quote from these um, uh, not so mainline sorts of things, if it can be done in a um, from kite kind of way. You know, say, no, it's not for halachic purposes, because there we're, we're very careful. But, no, for Musari purposes, let's put it that way. Uh, this is the strange history of the Medrash, so I can't help it. You know, this is the strange history of the Medrash. Now, in the 19th century, as part of the rise of what's called the Wissenschaft des Judentum and the Second Haskalah, so as part of the awakening of Jews to Jewish history, which really only happened in the 19th century, and uh, then the desire to apply historical criticism, meaning historical analysis, to uh, the Jewish past, to the Jewish texts. So one of the areas that the uh, historians and scholars uh, were into was, you know, the Gemara of the Talmud. But let's face it, you've got to be Talmud Chochner to be able to go into Talmud. Most of these guys who were in Germany and whatever place like that were not big Talmud Chachamah. They're coming on, they know a little bit. You know, they weren't big team mechachamim. And let's face it, to follow a halachic discussion, especially if it's a complicated sugya, I'll just give you an example. Rov, chazaka, you know, things like that. Ain't for the average academic scholar, a conservative type rabbi, or people like that in the 19th century, 20th century. But but I got it to anybody can understand if you work at it. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Uh, so you don't have to be the biggest scholar in the world biggest Tamachach in the world, to say, I'm going to become an expert in Agatha literature. Because you have so so many texts, and it's only Agatha. And so, there was this a natural propensity of the modern scholars, especially the less from, to go into the world of Agatha. Plus, I think they themselves were not from Muslims, they, they, they were turned off by the halacha discussions, the dinim. But Agatha... You know, you can't go wrong. And the 19th century was an era of nationalism when the Europeans were all into their native for- folklore and they were, the Jews would be into their, their folklore as well. This is the rough uh, historical context. 
in the 19th century, uh, a great deal of analysis, and 20th century, a great deal of analysis of these mid-rushing, and these books, and these things came out. Some good and some bad, as is always the case with this stuff. Some good, some bad. And in this context, one of the things they did was they started looking for, you know, are there, under, are there any other um, Midrash, Midrashim out there in some manuscript collection someplace that, that no one's ever heard of or they heard about one time but we forgot about today? And it was in this, this was a very exciting enterprise in the 19th century. <laughs> it just is. Even the Frum got into eventually, like W.T. Hoffman. And uh, they did discover that in some communities, for example, in Yemen, they have certain midrashim that others never heard of. But the Yemenites hold their old regular midrashim. To the Yemenites, they were as as, um, as uh, real as the Micheltar or whatever. And, you know, they, you heard about them very obscurely, but only in the 19th century did they systematically go after this. So an example of what I'm talking about would be they found the Micheltar of the Rajbi, which is different than the, uh, than the regular Micheltar. And they found the Medish Agoro, right? Which maybe you've seen around. Now, both of these were kind of like Midrashi Halacha, not just, I mean, old. And the question then became like this How do we treat stuff we find in there? Do we treat it seriously? We don't treat it seriously. Are we going to poskin from it? Not poskin from it. Since it's the 19th and 20th century, and it mainly was found by non from, but also by from uh, W.C. Hoffman, who was a multifaceted person in Germany. And one of the things, he was a great man. And one of the things he did was to go exactly in these obscure midrashim and publish them with the notes and all the rest of the Medish Tanoim, Medish Agol, all these sorts of things. It really, it really was uh, true. In fact, Hoffman has a wonderful uh, essay called Einleitung in the Halachish Midrashim. I actually have it at home. It's called Mavol the Midrash Halachim. If look online, if you're interested in what I'm talking about, if you listen to this podcast this far, it means you're interested. Um, go look up Mavol and maybe it's online somewhere. It's very interesting the way he analyzes uh, these midrashim and Medrash Halacha. I remind you, and you know he's one he's one of those who who adhered to the popular theory in the 19th century that a lot of these midrashim represent. Um, Two schools of thought, Rabbi Akiva versus Rabbi Shmuel. Rabbi Akiva being more the yeshivish and more mystical, Rabbi Shmuel being more rationalistic uh, type. And it's, it's, it's a famous theory of the analysts of the 19th century, and it's very, very interesting. And it, I'm not doing justice to it, but, you know, it, 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 it could be uh, dealt with in a very interesting way. Uh, and so, here they discover new books, and when you see something like the Medesh or whatever, these are New Midrashim. The firm world didn't know what to do with it. You trust it, you don't trust it. And since it's already 1800s and 1900s, and since a lot of people involved in this were conservative, uh, not from, and things like this, a very reserved attitude. So there's always a, a stratum of Orthodox scholars. They're very interested in this. Most of Cook published an edition. But you'll find the other is less so. And, you know, the... I, I would say the Chazani should be the main exponent of this, in which it's not exactly Chodesh Asimana Torah, but Chodesh Asimana Torah. You know I mean? In other words, we're not going to take anything just because some scholar found this. If it was meant to be known, it would have been known earlier. And uh, this, is, this is a political football. This is just an interesting act 
aspect of what we call midrashic politics. Midrashic politics. Uh, that more or less the state of field today. So, in practical terms, because it's late, I must finish it now, it's going to run out. In practical terms, uh, the average listener, I mean, the average person, myself included, so, what does this mean in, in realistic terms? You make it a practice to go through the Medish but every Jew should be familiar with the Medish Rabbah, Medish Sounds like it's a lot, but, you know, it's not really that much. It's just a matter of being Kovea Itim. That's all. And, uh, once you, just take it from me, once you do it at a certain amount of length, you get the feel. It's not something that can be described, it's got to be experienced. At least that's my experience, right? My experience. Then you see what goes and what doesn't go, and then you can tell later on other Mepharshim Achronim, these guys are more from, these guys are more, uh, um, what do you call it, more open, these are much more mystical, this one's much more rationalistic. The commentaries, and the many who quote this all the time, are 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 uh, uh, you know reflective of who they are, not necessarily what the text is, and you see the basic approach, which is there's a lot of ways, especially when it's not halachic. There's a lot of ways of understanding every aspect of the Torah, right? And uh, every story over there it can be analyzed in many different fashions, many of which will surprise you. Get it? so all I can say is I'm not doing justice to it in this little talk I'm giving. But I'm 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 uh, giving the <laughs> if I'm not taking it to the house at least I'm taking it to the front door and standing on the mat <laughs> you understand these are the basics so maybe I'll follow this up another time but if you do from now on the medishabi um, and in in Dvarim, the medishabi is very small so uh, but you know when, soon it'll be gracious if you make your business I'm gonna do a, a, as much as I can every week with medishabi even with the art school now. Uh, I'm not such a big fan of the article Medishrab, but it's but it's fine. You know, the real guy who did it was this guy Merkin. I mentioned once before. If you get the Medishrab of Merkin, I don't know who he was. He was some modern guy in Israel, 70, 80 years ago. You know, from guy but modern, and uh, he has what I like, what I like as the best uh, um, commentary in the Medish because he's very philological, very philological. Uh, that's 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 my uh, predilection. Uh, and, you know, there's another way of looking at it. That's I told you once before. The Ashkenazi, what's his name? The Yafei Torah, which they're coming out with now. But uh, that's that, that becomes a question of who you are. I repeat, this is mainly the area of Agarata. We do not pass in front of the Meish Agarata. I repeat that again. You you can follow if you want, but you don't have to. Just because you see a din, Meish Agarata doesn't mean that that's the din. Okay? Doesn't mean that's a din. Uh, but the Medish Halacha is a completely different matter. Then you see what's considered a usable approach, a permissible approach of the Chazal, and uh, and and approaches that we don't uh, permit. I would. This is just my opinion. So, uh, as I said before, it's a very very long topic, and if I was doing videos, this would be like an eight or nine part lecture series to get the Midrashim down right. But on the other hand, I hope. For Yosh and people like that, this will give you a basic mahalach of how to start. Right? And I think once you start, it's like everything else. When you start, little by little, A leads to B and B leads to C, and you start to see the right way it goes. It's a, it's a fascinating field, a midrashic study, and it's a huge field, and uh, it's one that's not part of the Yeshiva world at all, um, even though it's from. And uh, it's, 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 
it's just an in interesting aspect of the Shibim uh, Ponim Latour. It's a lot more than Shibim Ponim, that's the expression of the Shibim Ponim Latour. Anyway, I see I'm almost at an hour, so I'm going to wind this down. Have a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.